Well, after the ministry of the word, we'll sing from hymn 81, stanzas 1 to 6, and we'll stand if we're able. I'll encourage you to have your Bibles open again to Acts chapter 4 and verses 1 to 31. So we'll be working through that together. That'll be our text for this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been studying the book of Acts for some weeks now in Providence. Let me quickly give a review of what we see within this book. We see that this book is primarily about what Jesus began both to do and to teach. It's about what Jesus began both to do and to teach. It's not really a book about the Acts of the Apostles, but about the Acts of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, Jesus commanded the Apostles to wait in Jerusalem to receive power from on high, and the Spirit to bear witness for him throughout the world. In chapter 2, this power came on the church, what we know today as Pentecost Sunday, and the apostles were able to speak in all the known languages of that time. The curse of Babel was reversed, and the word went forth. Then in chapter 3, Peter and John were going to the temple to worship God. There they perform a miracle for a man who had been lame from birth. They didn't have silver or gold to give this man, but something far better. In the name of Jesus Christ, the lame man was commanded to walk. and He was healed by the Lord. And this went then to lead to a sermon that Peter brought at that time, attracted the crowds, and he preached Christ's power to forgive sins. He pinned onto the Jews their guilt for having killed the author of life. And he described this event in terms of the beginning of the restoration, which is spoken of in the prophets, especially in Isaiah. But the sermon didn't end with an amen. Before it was concluded, the Jewish leaders sent the temple guard to arrest Peter and John, detained them overnight, and brought them before trial. And that's where we're at now this morning in chapter 4. The name of Jesus is mentioned here several times. We have it mentioned six times explicitly. It's the name that brings relief to those who believe, and it's an offense to those who who don't believe. You're either for him, you're either with him, or you're against him. That's what is very clear from this particular text. And as you come to church today, I trust that the name of Jesus is significant to you in that way. Let's consider the passage with the theme, salvation in no other. There is No other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we'll look at this passage in two points. First of all, looking at the power that was given in his name. And then secondly, prayer in his name. So first of all, power in his name. In verses 1 to 4, we learn that the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees were 
greatly disturbed by what was said in Peter's sermon. And they ran over in haste as if they were putting out a fire. They were annoyed for several reasons. For one, Peter and John taught the people. They considered themselves the guardians of the truth. So this was a threat against them. For another, they proclaimed Jesus Christ, who they had problems with. They hated him because the people loved his teaching more than theirs. But this was doubly problematic since the apostles spoke about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was that a problem? Why was that a problem for the Sadducees? Well, they were not just sad, you see, as the joke goes, but they denied the resurrection. Satan always tries to destroy God's kingdom. Here we see his opposition coming from the outside, from religious leaders. In the next chapter, chapter 5, we see his opposition in the inside from Ananias and Sapphira. In chapter 6, we see his opposition in terms of division, which resulted in jealousy. But in every instance of his attacks, wisdom is required and strength is needed. Satan will use theological error or he'll use a sudden falling of a brother or sister into a notorious sin or a distressing case of bickering or strife in the church. But as serious as all these are, we're never to lose sight of the fact that Jesus Christ is in control of his church. We are to remain confident that the spiritual weapons which we use in our warfare are able to destroy whatever Satan may throw at us. For the very thing that the religious leaders in Satan were trying to stop couldn't be stopped. Verse 4 says that the number of those who believed the word was about 5,000 men. Now is that in addition to the 3,000 who believed on the day of Pentecost? Likely not. Paul uses the, the gender-specific term here for males. It's the Greek word andron. And it's used this way to give a, a summary of the growth. So if you were to add the women and the children, this is quite a number of people than just the 5,000 men. It's amazing, again, how the church is able to grow in spite of opposition. The times of refreshing that Peter spoke of in chapter 3 are indeed coming, and they're here. That's why, congregation, it's such a blessing this morning to say that we belong to the church. We must call on the Lord to build his church from the inside, but also from the outside. We must ask the Lord to use his spirit to give us the desire and the boldness to be a witness of Jesus Christ, regardless of the personal consequences. However, we must always be prepared for the hostility to the gospel as well as the opposition of Satan. Because when we're on the front lines of the kingdom and when we're involved in this, 
work for him. Satan is in the background, picking off those who are weak. This does not stop the powerful working of God's Spirit. For greater is He, the Holy Spirit, who is in you than He who is in the world. That then brings us to verses 5 and following. We're told about the trial of Peter and John and their defense. The rulers who were vested with authority, the elders who provided counsel, and the scribes who formulated doctrine made up the court. They were likely the Sanhedrin, the 71 men spoken of in the Law of Moses. Luke also mentions certain important priests, the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, his son-in-law. This was the high priestly aristocracy, those who were famous and well-known. And these really were the supreme court of the land of that day. Only a few months earlier, this body had met in the house of Annas when Jesus was on trial. This assembly tried to rid themselves of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But Jesus' name reappeared, just as he had told them would happen. And the question they begin with here is, in this way, they ask, by what power or by what name have you done this? In the Greek, the emphasis falls on the pronoun you, and thus it receives the stress. The apostles were being addressed as if they themselves had committed a crime. Well, Peter, Peter very skillfully begins his defense in verse 9 by reminding them that they, what they were talking about was an act of compassion to a needy man. If they had been judged for a good deed for a helpless man done in the name of Christ, then this, then this assembly, this, this Sanhedrin, had better be ready to hear about this name that they were opposing. And there are basically three thoughts that come out within this uh, sermon or this little speech that he gives. First is, is the proof, then the prophecy, and third, the proclamation. First of all, the proof. Well, the proof was there for all to see. A 40-year-old man who had been lame from birth was standing there in their midst, healed, by the name of Jesus Christ. In the English, it translates the word as uh, made whole or made well, but it's in the original, it, it is saved. In the sense that he was saved from perishing. The crippled man had been saved. The word save is often used to refer to physical health, being rescued from disease. You see that in, in the New Testament. When, when the Lord healed a sick girl, it says that he saved her. Or when he healed Bartimaeus, he saved him. Or when he delivered that man by the name of Legion, it says that he saved him. That's what Jesus Christ has come to do. He's come, as Isaiah says, he's been wounded for our transgressions, and by his, by his stripes, we are what? We're healed. And through Peter, Jesus saved this man from his lifelong bondage in his 40-year-old imprisonment in a body which couldn't move about. 
through his name, there will be no more paralysis, no Parkinson's, no cancer, no blindness, no colitis, pal mal or um, petite mal seizures, spina bifida, depression, muscular dystrophy, deafness, fatigue, asthma, arthritis, heart failure, aches and pains that come with the old age, with the age when we reach those, those times. We'll be raised with glorified bodies. And we will be saved from all the miserable effects of sin. In other words, there's hope for those who believe. For that's what is prophesied. Peter said in verse 11, this is the stone which you rejected. And it's a reference to what we just sang earlier from Psalm 118. You rulers and elders, you rejected Jesus. You rejected him. You mocked. This, this Jesus is not the Messiah. And you crucified him so that his name would be forgotten. Let's bury his name and then he'll no longer be remembered. And then Peter's quote in Psalm 118, a familiar psalm which prophesies about that stone which was considered unfit by the builders of the church of God, namely the rulers, God made the chief cornerstone, which is a, a building term. It's what we use to uh, build the foundation of a building upon. Peter then boldly proclaims Christ to be the Savior. This crucifixion took place because God ordained it. And you can have hope in Jesus' name because God gave his only son for a sacrifice and he was later raised from the dead. Which then leads Peter to the proclamation, there is no salvation in any other. For Peter says there is no other name under heaven, given among men, by which we are saved. This name cannot be avoided. Rulers and elders, you can crucify this man. You thought you could forget the name, but you're wrong. His name is here on earth because he is alive. And he is the only way to be saved. People are not saved through Judaism, through Islam, through Hinduism, through secularism. The only true faith is in believing in Christ as your Savior, which is an offense. We say that nowadays, and people think that we're being offensive. Well, it is offensive. It is the only way. So we see what courage was given. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke. That stands out as a significant event because it brings out the endowing of the Spirit to fill Peter so that he could speak. In verse 13, Luke describes the effect it had on the rulers. They, they saw their boldness. They perceived that they were uneducated men who had no formal training in the law. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. 
What could they do about it? Verse 14 says, And seeing this man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. They couldn't argue against the apostles, and they couldn't do anything to stop the name of Christ. All they could do was say to them, Don't speak in this name anymore. Which they were not going to do. And they sent them on their way. What it says to us, congregation, is that courage is given to us in the name of Jesus. The source of boldness comes from the presence of the Holy Spirit. When everything else around us brings discouragement, Jesus is the only one who brings encouragement and makes you bold and strong. Especially when you spend time seeking his face in prayer and asking for his boldness. That's helpful because for all of us, to a certain degree, wherever God has placed us, we're all called to speak about Christ. That's a very challenging thing. I know. It's not always easy for me either. I don't find it easy to speak about my faith in Christ in a public place. The reason that we struggle at times to speak about Christ is because we know how unpopular the claims of Christ are. James Boyce writes, If you want to be laughed at, scorned, hated, even persecuted, testify to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Say that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. Let's take heart, congregation, in the way that God used these men and the way that this message stumped the rulers. The world can't avoid the name of Christ. Many oppose it, but they can't escape it. We might be nervous before the world. We might feel very uncomfortable. But let's not be intimidated by the world and its values. Let's remember that the gospel is the wonderful news of salvation for this sinful world. It changed 5,000 men. And let's remember to pray for the Holy Spirit's presence to help us to bring the gospel to those who are unbelieving and to go to them in love. That brings us to what we see here secondly. We not only see power in his name, we see secondly prayer in his name, which we find in the rest of this, of this text. After the church had heard about the opposition, they found their strength and courage in intimate communion with God. Here what we see is the primacy of prayer. We also see the use of scripture in prayer, and we see that they prayed with purpose. If we pretend to read verses 24 and following in a man-centered kind of way, we might read that the reaction of the church to the persecution was something like this. After hearing the report of Peter and John, the church decided to put together a committee to look into this. And they decided to report back to the congregation with a possible answer to the difficulty that they were in. Or, after hearing this, they decided to focus they decided to change their focus. They wanted to make themselves more appealing to the Jews by using techniques that were less controversial. 
Let's not be so hard on these people. But the truth. And so they called in the church growth experts who knew how to deal with these situations and their, with their training. But that's not what we read, is it? The first thing that they did was to raise their voices to God. And notice the singular there in verse 24. With their voice in one accord, they said, Sovereign Lord. Prayer was the first thing that they did when, something, when sometimes it ends up being the last thing that we do. We can get pretty excited sometimes about special events. For example, we can get excited about times of fellowship, where there's a fellowship meal or something fun to do. These are times of blessing, no doubt, and refreshing to us. But when it comes to a prayer day service or a midweek Bible study where there's prayer, these things tend to be neglected. And sure, there are legitimate reasons. You know, we can be busy. We can get a pretty good idea, generally speaking, where people are at when it comes to times of prayer. We'll travel hours to go to a conference to hear the word preached, but not pray. We'll organize fun activities, but not pray. Why is it, congregation, that we find it so hard to pray? What is it that makes us so unwilling. Well, our reluctance to pray is a sign of our weakness and of our lack of faith. It means that we don't really believe in the power of prayer in the, the way that those who we read about today. But may we take these words to heart and consider the importance of it and how the church dealt with the crises. The first thing that they did was they prayed. But not only that, they utilized the word in prayer. They applied the scriptures to their situations. Verses 25 and 26 is a, is a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from a, a psalm that's very frequently quoted in the New Testament. It's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. The apostles and the early Christians show that they knew the word of God. They knew how it applied to their situation. They knew that Jesus fulfilled these special words. That the Christ, the anointed of God, who the nations and kings and rulers of the earth opposed. And not only that, they, they applied this to their very situation, which comes out in verse 27. For example, Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Well, this is... Verse 27 says, this is applying basically to the people of Israel. Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth took their stand. Verse 27 applies it to Herod and Pontius Pilate, the men of that city who took their stand. And Psalm 2 states that they were against the Lord and against his church. Verse 27 applies it to God's holy servant whom God anointed. That shows us that they not only valued God's word, they believed it in their situation. Their, their prayers showed that they entrusted themselves to God's care. And again, it's a challenge to us, congregation, to be trusting in God's promises 
that are revealed in his word. I read the slogan one time of a Reformed church. It was something like this. We read God's word. We preach God's word. We sing God's word. And we pray God's word. So if you want to have a meaningful prayer life, pray the word. Pray God's promises back to him. But the reason here for prayer is worth noting too. Looking at verses 28 to 30, it's very interesting what was said in prayer. Their concern here was for the glory of God. In verse 28, they they talk of the sufferings of Christ according to God's purpose. In verse 29, they speak of the persecution. Since they were now servants of Christ, they're not surprised by what they're going through. What is of particular interest here is that they were not selfish in their prayers. You know, they could have said, Lord, look at all these threats and give us a break. Lord, give us peace. We we need peace. We hate all this turmoil. We want peace. So Lord, please take away this persecution. That's not what they prayed, is it? They prayed that all things would be done to the glory of God. That God would continue with his purpose through them to do. Verse 28 not only applies to Jesus. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined to be done applies to them. Remember what James 4 verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So easy to ask for things amiss. Lord, help me in this situation. Lord, give me this, give me that. What about the glory of God? Lord, grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Shows this congregation that they recognize their enemies. The enemy wasn't just the world. It wasn't just the opposition of the kings and rulers. The enemy wasn't just Satan, though he certainly was behind this opposition. They saw the enemy within. How easy it would be for them to cave in and give up. They were asking God that God would help them to go forward with his strength and that he would receive the glory with their lives. That instead of compromising, they would continue with what God had given them to do. And how did the Lord answer this? Well, we see in verse 31 what happened. It says that when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. What a way to end a service. Boys and girls, what would you think if after the pastor prayed on Sunday, the ground began to shake? Well, your eyes would be wide open. You probably think, what in the world is going on? What did this shaking mean? What does it signify? Well, congregation, in a time of great trial 
and difficulty, at a very crucial moment in history of God's church, he gave his church a powerful sign to encourage them to carry on with what they were called to do. And that's the encouragement that we need as well. Encouragement to be faithful, to continue in our calling as Christians. An encouragement to be unashamed of our faith in Jesus Christ. May God indeed grant that to us. Amen. Thank you.